Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist and I'd like to welcome you to episode 11 of Across the Board, a podcast on the Board of Directors, Board Governance, Board Management of Strategic Risk, and Board... Today we want to take a look at an event from uh, recent headlines around GE and the semi-scandal involving the use of ghost jets by the prior GE CEO, Jeff Himmelt. There was a situation over several years where whenever the CEO would travel on the GE jet, there would be an empty plane which would follow him. While this might be uh, not considered a board issue from a cost perspective, the thing that raised it to the board uh, level was that there was an internal whistleblower complaint about this in the early part of this decade, 2012. Uh, in 2014, it was decided this policy would stop, and that was communicated to the general counsel and to the chairman of the audit committee on the board. However, it turned out that this policy continued up and through the time of Hamont's departure in the spring of 2017. The issue we want to discuss today is what is the role of the board when there is a whistleblower complaint about the CEO. It's a very interesting discussion and really brings up a lot of issues that boards must consider when the very senior management of an organization is accused of something that violates a company policy, code of conduct, uh, or procedure. Also, it uh, brings up how the board of directors needs to monitor the leadership of a company. Thank you for listening to this episode of Across the Board. Across the Board is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Today we're going to use the saga of the empty plane as our jumping off point. For those of you who haven't been following the story, it was disclosed earlier this fall that the former CEO of General Electric, Jeff Immelt, not only traveled the world in a private jet, but an empty jet and crew followed him as a spare. This was at a time when GE's operating cash flow was dropping, went negative in 2016, and its stock was performing miserably. Immelt now claims he knew nothing about the practice until 2014 when he ordered it stopped. Flight records and, quote, people familiar with the matter, close quote, disagree, and the Wall Street Journal says the practice continued at least into spring 2017. Mr. Immelt, senior executives, and at least one GE board member were aware of the practice, some of the people told the Wall Street Journal. Immelt blamed a senior human resources manager for being behind the plan, and the head of human resources is retiring this year at 65, quote, unrelated to the jet, close quote. Uh, the board has designated uh, the vice president of litigation and legal policy to investigate the whole episode and see who authorized it. The new CEO, John Flannery, grounded the entire fleet of jets when he took over last summer as part of an overall strategic review. This year alone, the company has lost about $125 billion in market value. Who knew what about the practice and when will be a large part of our discussion today, but it brings up larger issues of corporate culture, executive entitlement, corporate governance, disclosure, and compliance. Tom, spare jets obviously a symptom rather than the whole problem here, so where would you like to start? Uh, first of all, Richard, uh, this, uh, this one series of events really encapsulates as wide a um, net of lessons to be learned around leadership than maybe any one example we have gone over in our podcast series. We have talked a lot about specific leadership techniques. We've looked at presidents and tried to uh, ascertain how they led as presidents. We've looked at some leadership failures. 
and this one, though, has so many elements of corporate governance, uh, compliance that you touched upon, leadership, uh, policies and procedures, the role of the board. Uh, to unpack this one, I, I really, uh, when you suggested we go over this one, I really, really appreciated it. I've been thinking about this one a lot. Um, but here's, um, I was going to save this for the end, but to me, this is the single most important thing about this entire episode around leadership. So perhaps I should start with it if I think it's the most important. In a letter to the chairman of uh, uh, GE's lead director, rather, John Brennan, after the initial scandal broke, Immelt said, quote, given my responsibilities as CEO of a 300,000 employee company, I just did not have time to personally direct the day-to-day operations of the corporate air team. Fair enough. He added, quote, other than to say hello, I never spoke to the head of corporate air in 16 years, end quote. That last sentence, I never spoke to the head of corporate air in 16 years, is the most damning thing for me about leadership in this entire episode. <clears throat> the CEO, I've, I've worked for uh, Fortune 100 companies, and the CEOs of those organizations, they did have corporate jets, and I think it's an appropriate uh, business expense for a corporation to have a corporate jet for security reasons, for travel reasons, for efficiency reasons, and for a large number of reasons. And the CEO always knows the head of corporate, (laughs) corporate air. Usually knows the pilot's name. He usually knows the pilot's name, and to say that I Mm -hmm. never spoke to the head of corporate air in 16 years. If that's a true statement, I think it's perhaps the most damning one thing I've ever heard, or certainly heard about Jeff Jeff Elmalt of GE, and really speaks to an entire culture he's created where he's not going to talk to the little people. He's not even going to talk to the big people. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I think that just sets an absolute terrible tone at the top. I can't really emphasize that enough. Um, if you can't say hello, more than hello, rather, how you doing? How's the wife? How about them cowboys? You know, hook them horns. Did the Astros win? Uh, what did you think of the latest presidential election? How's the weather uh, in your hometown? I mean, just to, to not say anything other than hello for 16 years, I think is just a absolutely abysmal failure of um, specifically CEO leadership. Well, one of the things that really struck me about this is that when I went to business school more than 20 years ago, uh, Jack Welch was still head of GE, and GE was the management darling of business schools, magazines, and consultants. And that's continued up until very recently. There was, Six months ago? <laughs> well, there was a 2014 article in Harvard Business Review on how GE stays young, just full of praise for their entire management approach. And so, I mean, one of the issues here to me is how blind is everyone to what's actually going on? Um, or is this just a real aberration? So uh, I, I would have to, to go with the former, actually, although that, that may make it an aberration. But in the, in the um, I guess you would call this the compliance bucket, uh, perhaps corporate governance, but a whistleblower complaint was made via email. 
and that went to the board. And that's what started the investigation in 2016. Uh, previous, excuse me, in 2014. Uh, at that point, um, the then general counsel and one board member handled the investigation, and Immelt said that the practice was stopped. But then the Wall Street Journal reported, uh, as you correctly noted, that as um, late as the spring of 2017, the practice was continuing. So first of all, you have the always tricky situation of a whistleblower complaint of any nature made against the CEO. So there was some investigation. There was some remedial action taken. It was unknown uh, if, if there was any disciplinary action taken against Immelt directly, but at least the board or the, I can't even say the board, the one member of the board who was part of the investigation seemed satisfied that the issue had been resolved. And yet uh, the issue continued. Uh, there was a second article later this uh, in December um, about uh, the GE case um, in the Wall Street Journal, and they reported that there were now questions uh, because uh, you, um, first Emmelt said, well, the, the head of uh, HR, uh, Human Resources, handled this, who is now a woman named Susan Peters, who is either conveniently retiring or at, retiring at age 65. Uh, at least she's not departing to pursue other opportunities because she had 38 years of dedicated service to, um, to GE. And the um, um, reckoning of the board uh, it now turned out the full board was not made aware of this situation. And from the corporate governance perspective, I think that is absolutely just abysmal corporate governance when you have any issue about the CEO uh, uh, come up uh, and it's not reported to the full board. That's exactly what the board is there to do is to oversee the CEO, no matter how small. Uh, the issue, if it's a whistleblower complaint and there's an investigation, the full board has to be informed and the full board has to, if not make the decision, they can certainly delegate that to a smaller committee, but to sign off on it and be aware of it. And uh, I thought that part was uh, very bad corporate governance. Well, and uh, also on, on point, uh, Ms. Peters, the head of HR, was part of the executive committee that reviewed the, uh, the matter in 2014. Um, the general counsel who is part of that committee also has left the company as of 2015. And the CFO uh, was also part of the committee, and he has now left the company as of November. So I guess you could say that at least there are some consequences to the people involved, but um, it seems a little belated, and it's certainly been less than transparent. Um, now, the other thing was that GE currently has a board of directors of 18 people, which maybe the <laughs> – and they're, they're reducing it in size, and they're putting in a term limit for directors of 15 years, both of which I think are probably very good ideas. But uh, I think that may be part of the problem here. You have – with a large group of people like that, responsibility gets diffused. Uh, it does, but let me turn to one of the points you raised in your introduction, which is uh, – corporate entitlement, CEO entitlement, senior management entitlement. And um, it, the, uh, the other rather amazing fact from the second uh, journal article was that uh, this story was actually broken in 2010 by an anonymous Montana political blogger who wrote that two GE jets flew into Butte, Montana 
when Mr. Immelt came to an economic summit hosted by then-Senator uh, Max Baucus. The blogger reported that the airport staff said the second jet was an extra empty plane. <clears throat> the former GE spokesman, Peter O'Toole, what a name for a spokesman, responded according to the blog post that the board required the CEO to use corporate jets for security reasons and the claim of some sort of chase plane scenario is wrong. So, first of all, we have the story broken in 2010 and GE actually responding to that uh, publicly. But if your excuse is security reasons, um, if you're worried about security in Butte, Montana, uh, I think you have larger problems. Uh, in the first series of journal articles, when uh, cer cer uh, corporate aviation experts were asked about the security issue and was it possibly in case something nefarious happened or something bad happened and the CEO had to immediately uh, exit the, the location, uh, their basic response is, if it's too hot to send, if you have to send two planes in, it's too hot to send a CEO. There's no reason to send a CEO into an area which is either insecure, unsecure, or that is personal uh, liberty or health um, or safety is at risk. That That is just not an acceptable risk management strategy for a Fortune 5 CEO. And to claim that uh, they sent a corporate jet to Butte, Montana for security reasons, uh, um, just seems to me to be mind-boggling, but we don't. They're lying about it, and then lying about it. Uh, but it really does bring. Uh, um, I really like your phrase, corporate entitlement. Um, I, I have to. I have to start out by saying I think it's absolutely appropriate to have corporate jets in these locations, as I said earlier. But the entitlement of having a. <laughs> A spare plane or a plane for spare parts, or if your dog needs to be brought up, seems to me to just really be beyond the pale. Well, and one of the other things that Flannery is doing is is eliminating a lot of executive perks that ML put in place. Um, under Jack Welch, there are apparently about 125 executives who were allotted company cars. And under ML, that uh, blew up to over 700. Uh, Flannery's getting rid of all of them. I'm not sure the corporate car is really a justifiable entitlement. I mean, I understand that they're, for tax reasons, it makes some sense, but uh, it just seems like it's it's part of this culture where the executives are sort of grabbing everything with both hands. So, um, I did not go to business school, but I did study Jack Welch and his uh, regime at GE, and it was one of the uh, most bandied about companies. Uh, when I was at Halliburton, we, we talked about wanting to use the GE model to try to um, uh, bring Halliburton up to another level. And, and we took some of the techniques that Jack Welch used. Uh, the, the one that uh, most memorable to me was we uh, Halliburton management made the decision that they would only be for, in, in a business line if they could be first or second in that business line. And they <laughs> ejected a lot of companies and business lines that Halliburton had acquired over the years in various uh, mergers and acquisitions. And so um, the spirit of Jack Welch, the spirit of GE uh, was uh, um, something that was very well thought of. And uh, really for this to come out, I don't want to say it's the emperor's new clothes, uh, but um, it, uh, it may be a Gorky Village uh, situation. Well, the um, I guess the other thing, you, you have to look at the, the performance of the stock. And 
Stock traded at about $40 a share when ML took over in 2001. It's now less than half that. As for comparison, the S&P was at about 1000 then, and now it's almost 2700 So the relative performance to the stock market indicates that the market, at least, was aware of major problems brewing at the company. Um, so, Oh, and one of the other things was Welch had instituted what they call rank and yank, uh, annual performance reviews, which was controversial at the time, and I think it still is, because you divide uh, employees into certain levels of performance. You have to put so many, such and such a percentage of employees into each box, and the lowest performing are fired every year. Um, there, the GE has now replaced that with a uh, real-time feedback model, which makes more sense to me. But on the other hand, the ruthlessness of it um, seems to have paid off, at least under Welch's tenure. So now let me turn to compliance, because uh, in the compliance world, GE is uh, thought of as having literally one of the top five compliance programs in the United States. They are uh, very well thought of. They are very open about sharing their compliance program. They send the lowest level compliance practitioners out on the speaking circuit to give specifics about their program how they've incorporated uh, the guidance that the Department of Justice has given and other commentators into their program, made it unique to GE. I've talked to compliance professionals. They sit, uh, compliance sits at the table uh, with the business unit uh, employees, and they actually, they've operationalized compliance as well as any company I know. As a uh, compliance officer explained to me, it's not my job to make sure the company does business ethically. If it's in compliance, it's a senior manager, and it's the manager I report to. And he understands that if it's not his bonus, it's his job. And if he violates our compliance program, he's going to be terminated. And, and that was a very powerful statement to me. Um, and so now I even question how can you have a robust compliance program if there is not only a culture of entitlement at senior management, but really a complete failure of uh, the compliance regime uh, when it comes to the CEO. What kind of signal does that send to the company? Or the signal is, once you get to be CEO, <laughs> every day is Christmas. Yeah, well, I'm not sure what to conclude about it. Um, as I said, for a company with the reputation GE has, this is just horrible. Um, and it, it, it just shows a failure institutionally. It shows a failure of that. Of the outside analysts, um, it's, just, it's hard to really know what where where to go with it. Well, I think uh, to go back to maybe the point we started with, which is there are just multiple lessons from this incident or series of incidents uh, that can be learned, mined, and, and studied. And uh, failures. Uh, hopefully, the um, the new CEO will will institute enough structural changes that perhaps this won't happen again. But uh, the board of directors also has to step up. Uh, they have a very important role in this, and it's oversight of senior management, and they have to exercise that uh, that role as well. Yeah. Well, you know, it's possible what happened with GE, and it is, uh, Flannery is uh, selling off a lot of business units, partly to raise cash, but also partly because it distracted management. They, they just had too much going on with too many units. And, con you know, conglomerates have, have been cyclical at least since the 1960s. They're, they're in favor, and then they're out of favor. And now maybe we're just seeing another turn of the cycle. But uh, in this case, it's it's going to be a messy one. So let me take it a, a pretty different direction, though. Do you th do, 
or any of the either concepts we've talked about or observations you have seen in researching uh, for this podcast lead you to, to uh, did any of those uh, lend themselves to the reason GE bought Baker Hughes and may now have to divest itself of Baker Hughes other than the uh, conglomerate issue that you spoke about? Well, the the issue uh, having to be first or second in a business, I always thought was interesting, and I, and I was always kind of questioning it, because it seemed to me that what you're doing is limiting yourself to legacy uh, businesses. And GE has at least claimed to be trying to become more nimble, to get involved in, in smaller uh, startups with higher growth potential. With a company this size, it's hard to impact your, your financials uh, from such a small base. Um, so now I don't think that Baker Hughes was, was that ill-advised an acquisition. Um, but it, it's just it's a large, mature industry that's subject to uh, severe cycles. The only thing that I could think of was perhaps hubris, but even even saying that, uh, you're absolutely right on. And I would I would just say further on the econ- uh, in addition to the economic economic analysis you spoke to, I think that when Halliburton failed to close their acquisition with Baker Hughes. There was only two or three players, in, literally in the world, that uh, could uh, make that acquisition and um, buy or absorb GE. And certainly, the the government, U.S. government, looked favorably upon it. So perhaps there were other considerations that uh, aren't in the public record as yet. Yeah. Well, Richard, this one has been really fascinating. Like I said, I was really looking forward to to doing this one. There's just so much to uh, to study from from the leadership perspective, and. Uh, it, uh, great reporting by the Wall Street Journal. I don't know how they drug out that Montana blogger from 2010, other than I guess he was in the public record. So, nothing uh, goes away on the Internet. Nothing goes away. That's, an, that's a great lesson. Well, I think we'll be following this one uh, next year. As it, as it develops, the, they haven't said whether they're going to release the results of the internal review uh, this time around. I think it would be, they'd be very well advised to do so, but... Perhaps they just view it as something that they need to put behind them now that uh, Emil's gone and, and there's a new sheriff in town. Well, great. Well, thanks, Tom. As always, it's a pleasure and goodbye. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Across the Board. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and also help get the word out about the only podcast focusing on board governance, board leadership, strategic risk of board management, all from a leadership perspective. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Across the Board, and I hope you'll join us again. Across the Board is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.